Good morning. Our scripture reading is found in your pew Bible at page 909. I hope you don't need a pew Bible. I hope you brought your own. But if you didn't, the reading of scripture comes from the book of Acts chapter 2. We're in the middle of the event described so marvelously by Luke in the book of Acts the festival of Pentecost in Jerusalem, just seven weeks after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, 10 days after his ascension. And we began reading in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, would not set, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pentecost. It's a harvest festival. It's a day of solemn assembly. God had ordained it back in the days of Moses. God's people had been practicing the things that Moses delivered to them, including this great festival season, about seven weeks long, the harvest festival season. They'd been practicing that for about 15 hundred years. Can you imagine the numbers of times they had met in solemn assembly, first at the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem. God's people gathered together, waving the sheave of the first fruit offering, eating of the feast, shedding the blood of the sacrificial animals, giving thanks to God. All in anticipation of this moment, this time when in real time and in history, in the fullness of time, the Father would fulfill this promise completely in the giving of His Holy Spirit to His people. This was the time of harvest. This was time when the Spirit came to indwell and empower and to fill God's people and as we mentioned last week, he came and he came, the spirit came to the temple and filled the temple as he had done over and over in the Old Testament. We'd read about the spirit of God coming into the temple at various times and even departing the temple. But now he comes for his people and the people have been gathered from the four winds, from the four quarters of the earth. God's people had returned. This was the beginning of the fulfillment of the regathering of Israel. The regathering of Israel in the Bible is God bringing his people back together. And then that good news is they become what he had intended them always to be a light to the nations. They would take the light of the glorious gospel in the face of Jesus Christ and they would preach and Gentiles would come into the commonwealth of Israel, be grafted in be brought in, be adopted, and made part of the household of God, the children of Israel, the chosen people of God. That, of course, has been occurring now down through the centuries. God has been gathering His people, Jew and Gentile alike, and harvesting them and bringing them in to His fold. As one shepherd, Jesus Christ, over one fold, the church the true Israel, the new Israel, bringing them together. Now, on this particular occasion, the people are gathered for solemn assembly. And I would have loved to have heard some of the sermons that were delivered over that 1,500-year period of time. I, I suppose the high priest maybe would preach the sermon, maybe occasionally 
Uh, they would have a prophet participate. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament were also priests, as you know. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others were actually priests as well as prophets. Perhaps they preached on these occasions. I wouldn't be surprised that for a few years, King David himself stepped up to the platform to bring one of those sermons in the solemn assembly on the day of Pentecost in the ancient world. David just always seemed to want to get his hands into the work of the temple. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. I believe Solomon probably delivered it. Solomon was known as a preacher. He was known as a convener of an assembly. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. He's the convener, the koheleth, the convener of an assembly. Perhaps Solomon preached some of these great sermons on the day of Pentecost all through those years. Who knows? Maybe other kings and prophets and priests. We don't know. But we know who preached on this occasion, and it was Peter, one of the eyewitnesses of the majesty of the incarnate Christ. Peter had been with Christ throughout his entire ministry, and now when the Spirit comes with the sound of the mighty rushing wind and a miracle occurs, it was, as we noted last week, a miracle of the ear. It was a miracle of hearing. They all heard the mighty works of God preached and told in their own language to their own ears. And a few mockers had said, these, these people are intoxicated. <laughs> and thus begins our sermon. Peter just had to respond to that. Peter had to preach. You know, a lot of preaching is motivated by just trying to make a good defense of the faith. Every once in a while you listen to the scoffers and the mockers and the atheist and the humanist and the godless intellectuals just proclaim their message through all sorts of media and all around the place. And every once in a while a humble believer in God needs to stand up and say, just a minute. Hast thou considered this? And bring to the moment a sermon. And the way you listen to a sermon like that or any other sermon is you listen for a theme. Is there a theme? I remember my poor homiletics professor in seminary tried to teach us uh, the way you would structure a sermon is, is to have things lined up and he called it a rod of steel. As you would have a text a title, a theme, a topic, everything would come with one central rallying point. It would come to one particular focus. It would be a rod of steel running through the sermon that would constantly bring us to that point. That's what Peter's sermon has. Did you notice it? When he stands up to explain that these men are not intoxicated, but rather, it's such an early hour of the day, by the way, that they're probably not intoxicated. Drunkenness tends to come in the night. But Peter has the opportunity now to address them. And he says, this is the fulfillment of a promise. And the promise was that which God had made to his people through the lips of many prophets, here he quotes Joel. 
that talked about in the last days, in the days of fulfillment, in the days of Christ, when Christ would come, that God would do something. He said, the promise is, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters, male and female. And they shall prophesy, they shall preach, they shall tell forth, they shall proclaim. The Lord had said in Isaiah, you shall be my witnesses. Jesus told his disciples, you shall be my witnesses. And in order to do that, the Spirit of God had come upon them, giving them power to proclaim Christ. And that's exactly all you see. Notice in verse 32, men of Israel now hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Then again in the next verse, verse 23, this Jesus, then moving along to verse 32, this Jesus, then moving along to verse 36 and the end of the sermon, the very last phrase of the sermon, this Jesus, there's your theme. The sermon was from start to finish about Jesus of Nazareth. In that audience that day were all of the men who had been at the trial, the condemnation, and the crucifixion of Jesus. That's right. This was a high, solemn convocation, and the elite of Israel's leadership was there, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, and all of those associated with them. And these are the people that Peter's speaking to, men of Judea, the rulers of this little tiny nation. And he begins to tell them the divine perspective upon who Jesus is. They had a pretty good grasp of the human story. They had all seen Jesus. They had dealt with him. They had inquired of him. They had been in confrontations in the temple in various times. Uh, it was one of his operations that Jesus destroyed when he drove those money changers out of the temple. Countless times they knew Jesus on the human level. They knew Jesus whom they had arrested and whom they had condemned and whom they had crucified. They knew Jesus on the human level. And as far as they had con were concerned, they had simply ridded the nation of one pesty, troublemaking Galilean peasant. But according to the divine perspective, they had crucified the Son of God, the Lord of glory. And that's what Peter points out to them. It's interesting that when he talks about this great day, he quotes Joel and he talks about the pouring out of the Spirit, but then he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He goes ahead and quotes two more verses from Joel. Verses that in a way some have said, oh, this, this didn't apply to the day of Pentecost. But take another look at those verses. Verses 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below. The wonders in the heaven above accompanied 
several things that happened in the life of Christ. The star of Bethlehem. The solar eclipse at midday. Things that happened that were significant in this little nation's national life and they all knew these commonalities and these were but small flashing lights to get their attention that God was at work in history now bringing about his Christ, his King, his anointed one, his Savior. Listen to the, the signs, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. What is that class? What's that a picture of? Blood, fire, vapor, water vapor going up and smoke. That's the sacrificial system. That's the animals being slaughtered, the blood being placed upon the fire and burned up. The priest offering the incense with the vapors and the various aromas ascending into the heavens. And the smoke that accompanied it all and was the symbol of God's presence. All of that in the Old Testament had been fulfilled in the life of Christ as he hung on Calvary's cross, spilling his blood upon the sand. And there he was crucified. And then it talks about a day of his coming, a great and magnificent day. And then it talks of a day that will come when it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel going to everyone, Jew, Gentile, the whole of the human race, the whole of the species will hear the gospel and call upon the name of the Lord. And the promise is they will be saved. They will be saved. What does Peter emphasize in the sermon? What's his points about Jesus? Two, really. One is a resurrection that Jesus descended into the grave and he was raised from the grave. He quotes the prophet, or he quotes uh, the Psalm 16, David's uh, psalm there when he speaks of the resurrection and how you'll not abandon my soul to the grave or to Hades. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. That's resurrection language. That's what happened to Jesus in the tomb. He didn't stay there. He left the cold slab of the cave grave in order to ascend to a throne from lying on a slab in a tomb to sitting on a throne at the right hand of God. That's the other feature of Peter's sermon. It is this Jesus God raised up and according to the promise that God had made to King David in antiquity, recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 14, God promised that there would always be an offspring, a descendant of David to sit upon the throne. And because he said he would sit upon that throne forever, that was the promise of eternal life in 
that anointed one. And that's what the word Christ means, Christos, the christened one, the anointed one. And Jesus is that anointed one. So Peter quotes the classic ascension passages in the Old Testament. The enthronement passages from Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament verse anywhere in the New Testament, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. So Peter looks at those men that had condemned and crucified Jesus and you by your wicked hands crucified him. If there's a phrase there that just melts my heart every time I read it. He says, you crucified him. But he was delivered, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They exercised every scintilla of their malevolent, wicked, bloodthirsty volition. They determined it, they willed it, they wanted to make crucify him, the mob said, and they carried it out. But behind their will was the will of God that he should be delivered up, that he should be, as the high priest said that day, one man should die for the nation. One man should lay down his life for his friends. One man should be the sacrifice in the place of all the others, bearing the sins of all the others. And that's what you have in the crucifixion, is you have God's plan, his definite plan from all eternity being carried out. So much so that John is able to say after about three quarters of a century of preaching and reflecting, he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ, his death was not just a tragic martyr's death, but it was a determinative act of the sovereign God to save our souls. That death he died was the death we deserved and we had coming due to our sin and our rebellion. So Peter doesn't back away. He's bold. The Spirit has given him boldness. The Holy Spirit has given him something to say. And he's telling this very group that he crucified Jesus, that God had not only raised him from the dead, but had taken him and raised him up further to sit at the right hand of the Father. The ascension was the enthronement of Christ, being called up to take his place. No wonder when Jesus was just about ready to step on that cloud and to move up to glory, he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go, make disciples of all the people. Teach them to observe all things, 
whatsoever that I have commanded you. Hear the voice of a risen and an ascendant Christ who is giving the orders to His people. This is what Paul summarizes in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to this summary of what Peter has been preaching with the burial and resurrection of Christ and His ascension. Therefore it says, and now he, Paul will quote Psalm 68. When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. The gift of the Holy Spirit brings with Himself a whole load of gifts. The primary gift is the gift of prophecy. That is the gift of preaching, the gift of setting forth the Word, the gift of telling forth that which God has done. Paul continues, in saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? There's the burial of Christ who did not see corruption and did not stay in the tomb. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And the prophet had said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will see visions. I think that's all the way around. <laughs> These gifts, this gift of knowing, you won't have to have to coax every neighbor know the Lord. They shall all know me, says the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest. I will cause them to walk in my statutes, Ezekiel promised. These are the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings that he might fulfill all things. And he gave, a very familiar verse to us, verse 11, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. That's what you see happening on the day of Pentecost. You see the results of the ascension. And the language that Paul uses is the language of the conquering Caesar who would go out and conquer a province with the army and then would have a victory march, a victory parade, usually riding a great white stallion and would come back through and into Rome and would be welcomed by the people. But what he would have is carts and mules laden with the treasure of the conquered people. And he would bring this all and bestow it there upon the citizens of Rome. He would even bring people with him as slaves. <laughs> the very best people from the land, the intelligentsia, the most skilled workers, the highest rulers, the wisest teachers from the province would be brought back and would be part of the bounty that the citizens of Rome would enjoy. And that's what the Spirit has brought to us. Because of the work of Christ, and his ascension and his enthronement, he now is the king. That's what 
the very end of the passage says there, he says, they have made him both Lord, it's the same word we get the word Caesar from, kurios, kaisar, and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. <laughs> Peter doesn't let him off the hook. Well, we're going to be back in this passage again, I think, next week to look at a few more things that are there. But if you don't hear anything, hear the voice of Jesus. He now comes to us by His Spirit, laden with the good gifts, the gift of eternal life, the gift of regeneration, the gift of guidance, the gift of interpretation and understanding, the gift of edification, the gifts in all the ministries, the mercy ministries, all of that comes to us because God now, through Jesus Christ's enthronement, has put him in a place to where he can bestow all of this upon his people. And this is just the beginning of it. The unfolding of the book of Acts is showing the exercise of these gifts, the administration of so many of these gifts in bringing together the people of God and in building up the church and in extending the kingdom of God throughout the world.